The Healthy Charleston podcast is brought to you by Made to Move Physical Therapy. Made to Move Physical Therapy specializes in helping you get out of pain and get back to doing what you love. We offer relationship-oriented, one-on-one, individualized care to all of our clients, and we believe in putting the patient's needs first. If you'd like to work with me or any of our other physical therapists at Made to Move, check out the link in the show notes and get 10% off of your first session. We have locations throughout Charleston, Mount Pleasant, West Ashley, Somerville, and Daniel Island. Don't waste another day stuck in your pain. Follow the link and schedule an appointment today. Welcome to the Healthy Charleston Podcast, where we help you take ownership of your health and fitness. My name is Hannah, and I am here to be your source of accurate health and fitness information while spreading awareness about all of the different health and fitness resources available to you in the Charleston area. Be sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode. I hope you enjoy the show. Welcome back everyone to the Healthy Charleston Podcast. I have an awesome episode for y'all today, especially if you are soccer fans or maybe I should say football. I got to talk with the CEO of Charleston Soccer Club, Mike Kelleher, who has had a huge background in the English Premier League, the Charleston Battery, West Ham United, and I'm really excited for Mike and his team and their plans to elevate the standard of youth club soccer, especially here in Charleston. So Mike tells us about his love for the sport and how he turned his passion into a career. And we talk a lot about the main differences between the soccer culture here versus in Europe and what changes he's hoping to implement to keep the players healthy, make sure they really enjoy the sport and give both parents and players an amazing soccer club experience in Charleston. So if you have a player interested in Charleston Soccer Club, tryouts are happening right now. Go to the link in the show notes to get more information and sign up. Before we start, please give us a follow on Instagram to stay updated with new episodes. And now meet Mike. What's up, Mike? Good morning. Good morning, Hannah. How are you? Great. Thank you so much for coming on the show. No problem. Can you tell us, I think yesterday, officially, you got a brand new title. Can you tell us what it is that you do here in Charleston? Yes. So as of yesterday, I became the CEO of Charleston Soccer Club, uh, one of the youth travel soccer teams or clubs on uh, in the Charleston area based out of Somerville and Daniel Island. That's awesome. Congrats. Thank you very much. I heard that you have a little bit of experience with soccer, just a little. Can <laughs> yeah. you tell us more about that? Sure. No, I've been involved in the game uh, as, a, as my career, I guess, for uh, a little over 25 years now. I was, I suppose, the... The, the headline of, of where I worked previously was the English Premier League, uh, where I was for five years overseeing the, the academy leagues from under eight up until under 19. So essentially being the point of contact for all the clubs that you probably see on TV every week, Liverpool, Manchester United and their, and their youth departments. So I was registering the players, doing the schedule for their, their games for 40 academies at that time. And it was really... Um, a change in the way England developed its young players or the England professional game developed its young players. And it was access for young players from the ages of seven and eight, whereas before professional clubs only got them in at 14 years of age. But I can go more into detail, but that's kind of the essence of of where I started, I suppose, in in, in my career in the game. And then 22 years ago, took the opportunity to move. It seems strange saying that 22 years ago, it seems like yesterday, but took the opportunity to take a job in Miami working with the United Soccer Leagues. Big change in what I was doing. Uh, speaking to someone the other day, it was 
worked for arguably the biggest league in the world, coming to a, a very sporting-oriented country, America, but now is working for the fourth or fifth best sport in the or most popular sport in the country, and not even for the top division. So it was a bit of a culture shock, but uh, but I'm, I've no regrets. Twenty-two years ago. Yes. Yeah. yeah. In Miami. Yeah. yeah. How'd you end up in Charleston? Um, lifestyle change, I yeah. think. Uh, you know, I lived in Miami. I lived in. I've lived in different places in this country: West Virginia, Tennessee. Mm. What part of Tennessee? Um, I was in Knoxville for oh, okay. nine years. Yeah. Um, and then you know, I suppose I left England for the better weather, uh, for the beaches of Miami, and and kind of uh, you know now with a family, it was a happy medium, if you like. Yeah, Charleston's and the the whole East Coast. It sounds like what you've stayed. Yeah, more, more, yeah, the mountains of Tennessee, but, but yeah. the, the, the east coast of, of, of the country, yes. Yeah. So taking it even farther back, how did you get involved? I'm, I'm, I'm assuming as a kid in the sport. Yeah. The, and, and I've told this story a number of times to different groups around, you know, going to a number of high schools or colleges and people are interested in a career in sport. And the story starts as far back as when I was six years old. I won't go into, you know, overly, we could be here all day, but, but, uh, I came home from school, and and at the time, it's all that all boys did was played soccer at the school. So, so the, the the playground or the or the the recess areas, as we'd say in this country, you know, it, all it was was kids playing with with a, with a tennis ball. You couldn't have a big ball because it would smash the windows. It was on ball. concrete. Yeah, we had so loads of games going mm. off. Picture different age groups. Yeah. Anyway, so come home from school. I think it was about six years old. Dad, I'm a Manchester United fan. He said, "No, you're oh, not." He said, he said, "No, you're not, son." <laughs> He said that West Ham's your team, and and I think probably within a few weeks I got taken to my first game at the stadium at the time, Upton Park. Two years later, we had season tickets, which we had for ten years, and it really took on my life. You know, it was a life changing moment. I think you know I was playing every week. I was a reasonably good player, but but not not to a standard where it was going to be a career for me. And that's one. You know, I know we'll get into differences later, but at fourteen, I, I knew as much as I wanted. It was burning ambition and desire to be a professional footballer. It wasn't going to happen. I was I was invited to train at West Ham, and I realised then I wasn't good enough at fourteen. But regardless of that, I kept the love of the game, everything and anything I, I could do at school to get in time with a, a project on on soccer is what I did. Although the opportunities that are, exist not only in this country but also in England now to get a career in sport are, are far more than I had. It was almost trying to find every little angle when I look back of how to to make a, a math project, for example based around the, the finances of West Ham United. I remember there going go. in at 16 to meet the commercial director of West Ham. And, and this is all pre-Premier League days. It was really the popularity, you know, not just in this country, but in England. Of you know, The game's always been popular in England, but but the, the global reach of it and, and the finances in the game now far outreach what it was at that time. And, and I suppose it was, I was um, you know, one of a few who really, this is what I want to do. I'm, I'm a passionate fan of, of my team, and, and but I also would love to do this as a career. So I ended up actually leaving school at 18, as, as was pretty much, you know, all my friends left school at 16, uh, my close friends, and as you could do in England, was more of the norm and people get quite wow. a shock Where when, they, you, when they say that. Uh, you know, they worked in, in uh, uh, law companies as oh, clerks. They're just like bank. done with school? Yeah, I mean, I think with London being, you know, was so close, we, we, you know, where I grew up was on the, on the tube system. You're 20 minutes from, from the financial district. There's plenty of jobs. And and they let yeah they left at school at sixteen as 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 my parents did as their parents did, I decided to stay on for two years to do my A levels which is you know the, the education system in England, and then took a job at J P Morgan at eighteen. So so again it was the opportunity to go and work and be in the city was what I wanted to do, but soon realised that you know I had a couple of friends close friends that that went to university and I thought 
And I took some advice from someone who said you can work for 35 years of your life or 32 years of your life, go and do your three-year degree as they were in England at the time. And, and, and I went and did it. I went to a small university in the northwest of England, not far from Liverpool, played for the, the college team. There was four teams. I played for the first oh, team. I was running for the... I was organizing, the students took up, took care of all the, the scheduling and, and all that sort of stuff. So I did that in my final year and, and um, did a dissertation while I was there. I had to write a 5,000 word dissertation as part of my degree. And the only thing, I was quite good at maths and, and, and that was kind of where my, I suppose my mindset was, but but to write 5,000 words, like, how am I going to do this? And we did a, there was a, a class on sport and leisure management and they touched on the Hillsborough disaster while I was there. And, and now the Hillsborough disaster was, 95 Liverpool fans died uh, in the semi-final of the FA Cup. I remember the day I was at West Ham against Southampton. I remember the game and, and the, the message came through, I think, you know, on someone's radio or something like that, pre-obviously internet days and everything else, and that there was there was problems at the game. And you immediately thought it was hooliganism because that was the age we were in then. It was, there were fences up at stadiums. There was always, you know, at West Ham in particular, there was a lot of fighting going on between rival fans. I grew up in, you know, I certainly never took part, but I grew up in that environment. And that was your immediate thought that that was what was going on. Anyway, so the class was on that, on the on the Hillsborough disaster. And, and I wrote my dissertation on the Taylor Report, which came after the Hillsborough disaster to reform English Stadium, or Stadia. And it was the Taylor Report, its effects and implications on our national game. So I wrote, that was part of my degree. Moving on... <laughs> A friend of mine was working at the English Football Association. I, I, by, by the way, I graduated while I was also in university. I did my first coaching qualification, which allowed me to come to America to do summer camps for two summers, which I loved the experience. I loved, loved the weather, loved the, being in America, loved kicking a ball about every day, teaching kids, which I'd never done before. In, in, you know, I'd never been a coach before or anything like that. And then went back into banking. And, and I saw a friend of mine who was working at the English Football Association taking the under-17s, I think, to Malaysia, she was complaining, I don't want to go, I don't want to do this. I'm this, you know. I said, I'd cut my arm off to do your yeah. job. Tell me, you know, <laughs> why, why, why don't you want to do it? Anyway, a few weeks later, she calls my mum, says uh, there's a job going at the English Premier League or, or the FA Premier League, as we, we called it in England at the time. And I think Mike would be interested. So applied. I remember, I forget, it was the end of 90, 1996. The Euro, European Championships had just been in England. Got the interview. I know previously it was advertised in the in the London Evening Standard newspaper. Again, pre-internet days. I'm really dating myself here. Uh, and there were 800, 800 applicants for the job. Oh, my goodness. But this time it went internal. And I was fortunate to know my friend. And I've always reminded her, she's still a close family friend. The interview was about my dissertation, my coaching in America, and West Ham United. And I go. felt like it was it was the most comfortable conversation I ever had. I'll never forget the interview. And obviously I got the job. And it was initially as an administrative assistant mm -hmm. at the English Premier League. And it was involved with the scheduling of the, the first team games, rules and regulations, uh, registering the players or the, or the kits for the teams, the uniforms for the teams. One very quick story, Newcastle United wanted to wear a, a dark kit. It was almost a dark navy kit, probably in yeah, 97, 98, they probably wanted to do it. So they sent it into the Premier League. So... The, uh, I think it was the company secretary took me and another guy to Arsenal Stadium, Highbury. I wore the kit, ran into the middle of the pitch. The other guy had the referee's uniform on and that was a day at work and to see if it was a clash between the referee's to kit. To yeah, yeah. And he, stood, he sat up in the stands. I'll never forget it. It was, uh, And I remember thinking, wow, this is work. <laughs> what do you mean clash? Like So the color, so if the colours were too close to the referee's oh. kit at that time, it was, it was really gotcha. in the early days of the Premier League when... 
Uh, there weren't all the colours you see today and the referees. Yeah. And, and I think the referees' kits were green at that time. Okay. And this Newcastle kit might have been a bluey, navy blue, green sort of yeah. to see if it was a clash. So, yeah, I there had to get go. changed at Highbury in the old Arsenal Stadium. That's awesome. And, and so, yeah, it was amazing. It was, yeah. it was a great time. And, and, and just at the same time, I was still – I had the opportunity to coach at Chelsea under nine. So I was coaching with them once a week. And the director of youth at the Premier League – he was working remotely, and and but he would come in, you know, every other week, and I'd pick his brain about coaching sessions. So, so a guy called Dave Richardson, who's been a great mentor of mine over the last thirty years almost, he was at Aston Villa for twenty years, director of youth for the Premier League, recently fully retired. I think he's in his early eighties now, Dave, but he was just retired as the chairman of the Professional Coaches Association in England. So, but I'd pick his brain about coaching sessions, and like I said, I think where I said at the start of the, the conversation. England was going through a whole revamp in the way it developed its young elite young players and, and the academy system as as it's almost is today, it's changed a couple of times since, was just being started and formed. And Dave kind of took me under his wing to be his right-hand man in the office uh, to oversee the administration of the academies from the outset, from the start. So I was fortunate to be there in the right place at the right time. And for the last, I think for four years, for four seasons of, of my time at the Premier League, I oversaw all the academies. Um, in terms of the rules, regulations, and, and I suppose my network in terms of English football became quite vast without really realising it, and, and I still tap into that today. So that was that, and but I still, you know, moving on, had this burning ambition to do something else to go further afield. I think my uh, sense of adventure was uh, opened up to my two summers in America, and, and I, before I used to get on the tube an hour to work an hour back and, and a lot of people go to London and say, oh, we love that tube system, particularly from, you know, the subway, particularly from America. But if you do it in rush hour every day and there's no air conditioning and you don't Ooh. get a seat and you're on an hour there and back, it's something I didn't enjoy at all. And I used to think I'm on this 10 hours a week. How many times is that a month? Times that a oh, year? Oh no, got, you got, got so do, deep in it. I've got yeah. to do something else in my life. As much yeah. as I loved working at the Premier League, you know, so, so I, I there was only one club I wanted to work for because, and it was West Ham. You know, a lot of people said, "Well, go and work for a club," or and and I was close a couple of times to working with West Ham. It didn't work out, and then my boss Dave at the time helped me with the position in Miami and the United Soccer Leagues, which was a you know a, a lifestyle change. I, I loved my time living in Miami. Lived on South Beach for a little oh, bit. Oh yeah, great. Um, in my late twenties. Um, oh wow, yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> like a bachelor. So it was uh, yeah, it was a good time, and and. Uh, it gave me an in insight into America, into the sport, you know, particularly the sport of soccer, the professional side of the game, you know, which was way, way different to the English, uh, to the Premier League, um, and you know, the resources that the Premier League has, even even back then, was far outweighed anything that was in America at that time. But that was two years down in Miami. Ended up uh, moving to West Virginia. Interesting it, move. It, it yeah. was an interesting move. It was. Uh, <laughs> It, it was a woman was involved. I should ah, say yes, it was uh, my wife. And no other my, reason to move to West now Virginia. Now my ex-wife, but, <laughs> okay, but we'll keep great. it there. Um, but but no. So that was four years in West Virginia. I'd gone from London to Miami to Morgantown, West Virginia, and I thought, what am I going to do now in terms of my career? But I uh, I jumped fully into the local soccer scene. As, as uh, there was West Virginia University there, mm -hmm. I met with the head coach and the, of the men and the women's programs and. And, uh, you know, can I come and watch? Can I volunteer? You know, can I, yeah, can I come and watch your sessions? Uh, I'm you know, I knew nothing about the college system. I mean, mm -hmm. it, it's almost taken for granted in this country, the college system, the, you know, American football, basketball, what, you know, soccer. Uh, I didn't really know how it worked. I'd heard of it. But, but the West Virginia women's coach said, look, 
we've got a space open for the volunteer assistant here. Would you be interested? And I went, yeah. I didn't really know what it meant. The volunteer I, assistant. Yeah, of, okay. of WVU women. Did that for, actually did it for only the, for the spring season because I ended up becoming the high school coach of Morgantown girls at oh. the time. I'd got, I said, I got myself fully immersed. I started taking all the licenses. But but the insight, I remember turning up, you know, I tell a lot of college kids this, you know, I volunteered to to be, you know, I'd come from the Premier League, I'd done this and that and worked at Chelsea, even, you know, even though it was once a week with the under nines. But I remember getting at 6am was the practice time because it was winter mm-hmm. time and we had to get in before the, the football team, mm. before classes. And I remember being the first one at the door quite a few times, but, you know, I wasn't getting paid, but but it but it gave me an opening and future years you know I used Nikki Izzo Brown who is still the the head coach at West Virginia as, as a uh, reference and it ended up getting me a, a, a chance to be a graduate assistant at Tennessee and my master's mm. degree at Tennessee so you know I always say that you know never if, you, if you're going to volunteer or you're going to be an intern put everything into it mm-hmm. you never know where it might lead as even if you don't think this is what I want to do for the rest of my life yeah it's two months of your life or three months or whatever you never know what may come of it so that that's one for for students or people looking to get into the game and or into sport, I would certainly encourage them to do those things. So, yeah, I was the, in, in West Virginia high school coach. I was the, I said, the WVU volunteer, women's assistant. There was a new facility got built called Pro Performance, which was a $6 million indoor training facility. Oh, wow. yeah. I became the director of soccer. I was uh, helping to run one of the local travel clubs. Uh, they are coaching, a uh, really full-time coach at that time was, was by the time yeah, we left West Virginia. And then moved to Tennessee, again, another, just because it's a nice place to live. It wasn't the yeah. job took me there. It was a nice place to live. Got the opportunity, as I said, to work with Tennessee and the Vols and the women's soccer team there. Great experience. Did my master's degree in sport management as a mature student. Loved that experience. Um, one of the classes was on the NCAA. You know, I thought I knew the Premier League rules mm-hmm. inside out. The NCAA oh, is probably... Ten, you know, if you had a manual on it, that'd have been ten times the size of the Premier League, you know. So, but it it was good. It was you know, ethics in sport, lots of things in that in that year that I look back on and and probably use to this day as doing that master's degree. And and then when that finished, uh, a job came up on the uh, the National Coaches of America Soccer Coaches of America website. West Ham United seeking a player develop or a head of their international academy or oh, whatever wow. the job was. Yeah. So I rang and it said West Ham are looking to you know run camps in America or, or whatever it was at the time. I rang up the head of youth who I knew and uh, said Tony and a guy called Tony Carr, a, a legend in, in in youth football. Tony, how are you? And he actually just got me two tickets for West Ham Tottenham. I'd been back and he and through mm. my boss Dave or my old boss. Anyway. I see you're advertising for a job in America. Is it legitimate or is it just shirt selling? And that was almost my words. I'm not interested in just selling shirts for the club. If yeah. it's really about working with the academy and, and coaching and, and spreading. Oh, so it was here. The yeah, job was, was here. here. That's right. Okay. So Tony said, yeah, we're, we're fully behind it. Our doors are wide open. Uh, we, we think there's, we, we, he said, first of all, we think we've got a good product here at West Ham in, in youth development, and which they absolutely did. He had to you know, and look at the players that came through it at that time. And and he said, you know, we're in. We're, our doors are open for players, parents, coaches to come and see what we do, and we think there also might be one or two players in America that we'd like to, you know, scout and and have a footprint over there. So that was good enough for me. I took the job. It was uh, the, the it was a, a gentleman had the rights to it in this country and, and did a partnership with West Ham, and I was the I think it was partnership development manager was the initial initial title for West Ham United in in America. And we grew the business or that that part of the business to 40 partner clubs in America. I wow. was certainly 
you know, I was enthusiastic about it. I was mm-hmm. motivated about it. You finally got it. to I, work yeah, for I, us. I, yeah, I had yeah. the West Ham kit or, or training kit or coaching <laughs> kit. I was, I'd done all my coaching licenses as well up to that point in America. That was another thing that my old boss said, if you're going to do coaching, get all your licenses. So I'd done my A license up to that point. Great to working with, we did camps in Australia. We had, uh, I think we had about 40, 50 camps in America. We were taking groups to, to West Ham. Uh, we were taking some very, very, we had residential camps in this country with the West Ham staff coming over. And it was as legitimate as a partnership could be bringing the Academy of West Ham to, to America. Uh, and I'm you know, quite proud of what we did there because there's, there's a ton of clubs over here trying to do things uh, from Europe. And I always like to see, well, who's who's fully behind it? What, what's mm. the company and, and are they bringing over the, the real coaches? And, and in some cases they are, but I know we, we, we sort of changed the mould a little bit by bringing over the likes of Tony Carr and his staff with West Ham. That led into the same owner, the guy that had the partnership, uh, started a company called Global Image Sports. I became the chief operating officer of that while still running the West. It was all under the West or the Global West Ham then became under the Global Image Sports banner. And we grew the business into partnerships with 14 professional clubs. So again, I lent on a couple of my uh, former, some of my network, and we did partnerships in in Italy Mm. with two Serie A football clubs, uh, Chievo Verona, Sampdoria, Utrecht in Holland, Glasgow Rangers in Scotland, a couple of more English clubs, Wolverhampton Wanderers, Stoke City. Anyway, ended up doing about 200 camps in America, camps in Asia, camps in Australia, flying groups over to, to England, to Europe, to all them countries I just mentioned for an experience, a legitimate player experience. And, and, and it was a lot of good times, lots of good things came of it. Lots of good people came you know, through, through the network. But I just had two, you know, got my, my children were born and I'm flying all over the place, going up and down the country, moved to Charleston. I'd, I'd actually got involved with bringing, bringing Glasgow Rangers to Charleston, to, to Charleston Battery. The first team came here for a pre-season. Again, this guy, Dave Richardson, who I've mentioned probably four or five times now, called me up and said, you're going to get a phone call for someone I know who's bringing a club over to, to America, would like your advice. And the conversation started and, and it ended up being Glasgow Rangers who came here to play, I think it was 2016. I said, I'm just moving to a place called Daniel Island. I know they've yeah. got a team here. Uh, I've met them a couple of times. Let me see what we can do. And, and, and the game started and, or the game got take, took place here. I'd moved here by then and the owner of the club at the time said, what are you doing? I said, you know, I'm working for this company, but really looking for something more local so where I can sleep in my own bed seven mm. days a week, look up, be part of my, my family, part of my kids' life um, and, and uh, appointed me as the VP of operations for the battery. There you go. I think a few weeks later, he made me the chief operating officer and about a year later, I became the president. So All right. running the Charleston battery, uh, fully immersed into Charleston culture, sports culture, back with the USL. And, and I did that for six seasons as, as either the president or the chief operator, operating officer. <laughs> sadly, the stadium got sold. Sadly, mm-hmm. sadly, you know, I'm certainly proud of my time, my three years working in that stadium. And I know it, is, it rings true of a lot of the fans that, you know, they were very proud of that stadium. I was proud to work there. But when you saw the, you know, declining attendances and, and it was, I always said it was ahead of its time when it was built. Um, obviously, I wasn't here when it was built. But sadly, at the end of the time, it was behind the times. And, and you know, you look up and down the country and the success of the USL, the, the second tier of American soccer, uh, and even the MLS clubs, stadiums are being built in highly, in higher populated areas. And, and I think the move to Patriots Point, I think, was a necessity for the, for the future of the battery. And I think now this is the fourth season now at Patriots Point. You know, we went through COVID and, and I was back there last Friday where there was a a recognition of Mike Anhauser, the you know the legendary coach there, 
Um, I think now, you know, it's, it's in a good place, the, the club, and, and I'd like to think, you know, maybe I played a small part in that to be where that is today. So finished up with them at the end of last season, looked into doing, you know, did some consulting work, was really interested in what else was going on. Opportunity arose to, to, to take on the Charleston Soccer Club. And, and the Charleston Soccer Club was born out of um, uh, Charleston Battery, had a youth programme, which, which I was part of the start of in 2018. Uh, Somerville Soccer Club came with, under the Charleston Battery umbrella. Uh, we had some opportunity to, to develop some fields here on Daniel Island. And my kids also, my son said, I want to start playing. I became a coach when he was an under nine, or I became, I re-became a coach, I suppose, with him. And my daughter, a year and a half ago or two years ago, said, look, I want to play, only if, but only if you're the coach. I said, oh, I can't, I can't coach my son and not my daughter. So yeah, became immersed in the, in the club and, and now even more so as, as running the whole business side of the club of the Charleston Soccer Club. So I haven't, hopefully I haven't sent too many people to sleep with that. But, <laughs> but, uh, um, but that, that's the background, I suppose, of where I'm at and, and how I end up to be where I am today. Yeah, you have very successfully created a career in, in soccer. Thank you. Thank yeah. You. yeah. And hopefully more to come. Yeah. <laughs> I love that you you were like, huh, I love this, but I'm not, that, I'm not good enough, but I'm going to find a way yeah. to be a part yeah. of it. No, I know people. So the the difference in you know the differences in the game in England, Europe, I, I would imagine South America is the same. Is that there's a pecking order of of, of where you can be, um, and that's driven by the professional clubs. That you you know the the the, the ultimate is getting into a professional club and into their academy, um, as is today, and, and and they'll only take the best players based off of ability, not whether or not you can play. It's 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 very much a working class sport. It was developed as a working class sport. It was often, you know, I'll use West Ham as the example. West Ham was formerly known as Thames Ironworks Football Club hmm. from 1895 because it was the shipbuilders on the River Thames. It was their works team. And that is, that's replicated up and down the country of England because it was, I think, part of the Industrial Revolution. And forgive me if my history is not that great on that. <laughs> but that, but that was it was to give the, the workers something else to, you know, the, the rich company owners started mm-hmm. forming football teams to give the workers something, something, to do. Yeah, something to do, yeah. Whereas I suppose in the modern day, we do, you know, uh, memberships of gyms uh, for, mm. for companies to give our employers some a healthy outreach in, in the company or as a perk. So that's how they started. It was very much working class sports and rivalries and tribalism of where your team was and where your club was. Um, but, but back to the point being the pecking order is is known of where you can be. And, and um, you know, and, and I know boys or 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 men that got to got to eighteen, very close to being a professional footballer, and they never wanted to see a kick a ball mm-hmm. ever again because of the heartbreak of of getting so close and and being told you're not good enough because mm-hmm. you you have to get that far. You have to be a very talented footballer in the first place, and you're normally the best at your school. You're normally best in the county, best in your 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 club team, and you get into that pro environment and the cutthroat world of that pro environment. They may only take one or two yeah. from that under eighteen team to move on to be pros. And you, you're being told no. You've been told yes from the ages of seven, eight, nine. Your whole life. Your whole life. Doing this. Yeah. So, so there's, there's that's you know whether that's good or bad. That, that that's the nature of the beast. And 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 you know when you're not good enough. So mm-hmm. I'm I'm almost on reflection glad it happened at fourteen and not at eighteen. I didn't you kind get of took so yourself out yeah, of it. Yeah, yeah. But I still played. I mean, I was playing two, three times a week sometimes mm-hmm. with different teams. Um, and, and still had the desire to want to, you know, to go to, to the, the the live game, the season tickets with my dad. And, you know, look back on that. That was my dad and my and my thing. It was it was predominantly a male-orientated sport 
as a spectator as well as playing at the mm -hmm. time in England. And, and that was our thing on a Saturday. Every other Saturday we'd yeah. go to West Ham. And, and that's pretty much still all we talk about today other than how the kids, good, well, West yeah. Ham lost again. But yeah. well, that's, that, that's kind of the conversation. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's like you got... You got out of it a little earlier, so you had time to kind of adjust and figure out what am I going to do now? Yeah. And how am I still going to be yeah. involved in this? Yeah, without knowing there was a way, I suppose. And yeah, looking back again, mm -hmm. because there really wasn't the career paths that, that I see in America. You know, the, the sports degrees that were available at the time was often sports um, physiology. So it was often people that had excelled in a sport. So if you'd got to 18 at a mm -hmm. club and yeah, go to university and, and learn about, you know, probably you know, how the body works. And I wasn't really yeah. that interested. I was more interested in, in how the business works or, mm -hmm. or, or that's, or how the scheduling works and which things I ended up doing at the Premier League. So that, that was more what was driving me than, than, than that side. But, and it wasn't that much, you know, there was no sport management degrees at oh, the time. Oh, now they're everywhere. Exactly. And, and, yeah. and you can do it in England. I know there's, there's football degrees. <laughs> so yeah. you can get on and the whole degree is based around football, which I would have absolutely loved to do. To yeah. Have done. So it was, it was strange. You know, I, I, I you know, the natural thing, as I said, was to go into the city. And even when I'd done my, my bachelor's degree, I was back in the city. I was working for JP Morgan again mm -hmm. uh, and, and AB and AMRO after that. And, and you know, I'd, I, I just kept thinking there's got to be another way. There's got to be something else I want to do that's going to really motivate me and, and, and stimulate me in my career other than sitting in front of this screen all day. And despite, you know, I say to people, my bank balance may have ended up being four or five times what it is or was, and but mm -hmm. my life experiences wouldn't be anywhere close to it. There you I've, go. I've done some pretty unique things yeah for things. sure so, yeah some things that like kids dream about yeah you know yeah, yeah there was i mean i mentioned the arsenal one earlier but the other one was uh uh got told i think it was in that first second there was only like seven or eight of us in the premier league office at the time i think there's over 200 there now uh but we were in the football association's offices so we shared a lot of their resources but i got said you're gonna go up to liverpool it must have been in september time something like that you, we want you to be on the front of the Premier League Christmas card. So, okay. Cute. So, yeah, but wait till you hear about it. So I go up to Liverpool, go to Anfield, to the stadium, and, and our photographer's up there. I get changed in the Liverpool home dressing room, mm. put the kit on. And, and and to be on the front, of the, at the time, a number of players were celebrating by putting their shirts over their heads. Yeah. So I had to run around Anfield with the shirt over my head as if I'd scored a goal. So I am actually this is on the part front. part of your job. Part of my job. I'm on the front of the Premier League. Uh, Christmas card, but you wouldn't know it's me because the shirt's yeah. over my head. But that was that was part of my job one day. So it was it was a, a surreal, another surreal moment. What year was that? Can that I still been, find it online? Yeah, I think, <laughs> no, it's not. Again, free internet. Unfortunately, it's free internet. That's too bad. It's pretty late nineties, but I'm sure there's a I'm sure there's a copy at my mum's house somewhere. There you go. Yeah, Christmas card. Yeah, yeah. So you said that when you kind of started, the academies were. 14, 13 teenagers, and now it's more seven to eight, and it yeah. seems like. There's just so much competition yeah. to become, you know, there's thousands of kids and then one, one or two yeah. get chosen. Yeah. What made y'all decide to kind of revamp and change the way it worked? It was so England had done poorly, uh, the national team on, on the men's side. And, and, you know, there's been success on the women's side last year in the European Championship. So, but but on, on the men's side at that time, I'm going back to didn't qualify for 94 in the USA lost on penalties in 96 90 anyway but it, but the idea was that the the clubs and and the formation of the premier league so the, the the clubs felt they weren't getting the boys early enough to influence them by the time they were coming to them at 14 there were too many bad habits being formed i remember these conversations going on and, and it was you know a huge learning curve for me as well 
and they, they wanted to get them in at the golden years of learning, which they believe eight to 12, and there's some variation on that depending on what you read. And a guy at the time called Howard Wilkinson was the technical director of the English Football Association. He also was the head coach of England uh, for a couple of games. He wrote me a nice letter when I left the Premier League. But he'd done a, a, a study called the Charter for Quality. And he'd been to all over Europe, looking how Holland do it, how Italy do it, how the French were doing it, uh, how Spain, and, and tried to put in, into place some good practice for, for England and, and the academies. And that meant young players... Michael Owen at the time, and, and, and I don't know how many people will even know who Michael Owen is now, but Michael Owen was the young superstar at the time in England. He was 18. He'd scored one of the best goals ever in the World Cup against Argentina in 98. But from the age probably of 15, everybody knew he was the superstar. But by default at that time, he was probably playing 100 games a year where he was the best player for his school team, his, his mm -hmm. club team, his county team, England. Yeah. If Liverpool was, you know, he was at Liverpool at the time. So it was overplay and overplay injuries and, and, and you know, probably resonate with with this this talk today you know I think you see that and and, and the chart of equality said uh, elite young players should not be playing more than 36 games a year or whatever Oof. the number it was round about that 100. number so and, and it should be elite games and, yeah. and Liverpool if he's signed with Liverpool Liverpool should manage those games mm. and if if the local maybe they release him for one or two games for the school which might be a final or the county but he's for, for his development if he's going to be a future professional player mm -hmm. they have to manage that and he had a lot of hamstring injuries through his overplay and in his in his younger days um he was also a very quick player and all reasons for that but so the point being it was managing elite young players and giving the clubs access to the elite young players and and i was back at west ham 2 weeks ago we took two groups from charleston soccer club the, the 09 boys and 2010 boys. And, and, you know, I was talking to the guys there, you know, they, they've gone on again another level. You know, they now have, the academy itself has 200 full-time employees um, looking after the welfare of the young players, the education of the young players, the, you know, the health, the the psychological side of it as well. So everything, and, and maybe it's gone a little, you could argue it's gone too far. You know, when, when, do, when do young boys just be young boys uh, as opposed to being future professional football players but but it, it really that time in the late 90s it was revamping the way England developed elite and I'm talking about elite you know not not the masses the elite young player uh, and, and it was more access at the younger ages was believed to be the you know the way forward yeah I mean now you start as young as possible and it really 14 would be like someone starting their freshman year of high school yeah and then becoming elite which yeah. just it doesn't happen anymore. Yeah. Mostly because, you know, everyone else yeah. is starting so young yeah. and the the development like before the testosterone, when the testosterone yeah. hits yeah. is so key yeah. to not just skill, but also like athletic development sure. and just health in general. That it's it's interesting um that there was ever a time that you started, you know, my soccer days, I played one year <laughs> and I started, and the reason I played one year was because I was so bad. And I started my sophomore year. So I was 15. All yeah. the girls had started when they were three. Yeah. And it's funny to think like that kind of used to be the standard. I, th I think they were, that was at the pro club. So they, so they were playing for, you know, we'd call it Sunday morning clubs mm -hmm. in England from seven, eight, nine. So they were playing. But it was just the pro team wasn't taking them yeah. within their within their academy yeah. to like develop yeah. them until fourteen, yeah, yeah. Um, and and there's arguments for and against that because of you know you you, you want to keep people you know our kids uh, you know they're in their family environment they're in their, playing with their friends they're doing all yeah. that sort of stuff so the the psychological side of it, uh, it needs you know but but I think you know 
has it been successful? I think so. I think because England have been the closest they've ever been. I'm looking at them. Mm-hmm. So, so they always said, you know, for example, Manchester United will will get the best players for Manchester United, whether they're English, Irish, Scottish, Welsh, French, yeah. Ghanaian, wherever it may be. And now there's rules that prevent them signing boys from, until they're 18 from outside of Europe and Brexit's a whole other story. But yeah. it was always thought the byproduct of Manchester United being better at developing young players and all the other Premier League clubs for that matter would be the England national team would do well because by default they're, they're in England and they will get more English players than not. And you could argue, you know, World Cup semi-finalists in 2018... 2021 within a penalty shootout of winning the European Championships. Now, England hasn't won a trophy on the men's side since 1966, and that year is hammered home to everybody. Oh, goodness. English football fan, uh, yeah. English player, English national team player, and and the, the, they've come the closest they've ever come mm-hmm. within the last four or five years, and you could argue a lot of that's to do with the, the youth development system. Yeah, They've sure. won World Cups at uh, U18, U17, around about those mm. years, prior to getting to the semis of the, of the World Cup. So, so they have started to win trophies at youth level now, and it's whether or not that can transpire to the full national mm. team. Yeah, and uh, and that would be the, the the culmination of of the whole academy system. Yeah, I mean, it takes a while to kind of take into effect. Correct. Yeah, I, I want to get into the differences. Sure. And when you moved to Miami, yeah, what was like the first thing that you noticed that was just so surprising to you? The difference in in the sport here. Cool, Miami. Uh, Miami is a different place altogether. Right? Yeah, that maybe. Yeah, but when I first, I suppose, first came to America, the, the difference being, look, we all know it's a massive. The culture of sport in this country. I t- there's two things that spring to mind. It, if I look at youth sport, the the whole family. You know, I was talking last night at, at Charleston Soccer Club. The whole the whole family takes part. The whole family, or it, or it's mum, dad. You know, everybody's watching the game. You mm-hmm. know, every the youth game. Whereas in England, you know, when I was a kid, there's probably three dads watching the game. And really? So you, you, the old, you know, the, the old saying used to be in England: you're playing in front of one man and his dog. You know, that, yeah. was, that was the level you played at. Or, mm. or, and and you'd get dropped off, play your game, they pick you up uh, afterwards. And, and my mum, I think, watched me. We, we used to joke. She came over when I was coaching uh, a team, probably about 15 years ago now. And and it was a cold day. I think the snow was coming down, but the, the parents. Because my mum, they gave her a chair, a blanket, hot chocolate. And she said, oh, I might have come and watch you play a bit more if this is how we got Yeah, this is great. You just stand on the side in the rain. And, and it, you know, my dad was one of the three dads probably used to come and watch. So so it's the involvement of the parents mm-hmm. is, is quite... And that, and that's good and bad because yeah. they can be overbearing some people. But without them, you wouldn't have this, you know, the level of sport we do. So so that's the first thing. I think on terms of the, the spectator side, um, and whether that be... you know, I remember going to watch the Miami Dolphins, the Miami Heat... The game, and, and maybe the Premier League is getting there, but maybe not because I was at three games a couple of weeks ago. You go to the English football game, soccer game, to watch the game. For 45 minutes, you're in your seat, and then halftime yeah. comes, and there's a mass rush to the to the restrooms, to the So you, you can know, get the, back the in your concessions. seat. Concessions, yeah, 15 minutes, and you're back in again. The the Miami Heat, the Dolphins, or whatever, even the battery for that matter, everyone's up and down every two minutes. Mm-hmm. And the game is the game is almost like a side show going on. It's a social on. event. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's like uh, you know, what food trucks are here or what vans are before. Yeah, and, what can yeah. the kids do? And and the game's going on. But but in terms of, you know, the, the spectacle, that's and and the game itself is, you know, I remember being a season even even now to that matter, you know, it's the be all and end all for your week. You know, it's 
you know, looking up. I remember my mum saying, used to look up the score before me and my dad came home to see what mood we'd be yeah. in. You know, so is it going to ruin the weekend or are we going to have a nice evening? So, Great. yeah. So that that's that's for me is one. And of course, there's diehard fan. You know, I always get, well, you know, have you been to Philadelphia or have you seen, you know, the college games? Mm-hmm. You? Yes, of course, there's diehard fans, but but not to the masses that. That's one of the big differences, I think, you know, on, on reflection, on first coming over in, in terms of the culture in the two sports. Not saying one's right or wrong, but it's just the differences. Yeah, I didn't think about that, that it's way more centered around entertainment yeah. here and entertainment that's like much broader than just the game itself. For sure. I think also with like American football, there's so many breaks. Yeah. That I mean, when we watch a game of soccer on Saturday or Sunday, it's like you can't move. Like right. you are watching the whole yeah. time. And if you look at your phone. Yeah. Elliot's like, did you see yeah, that? Yeah, 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 And I think that, you know, with a lot of different factors, soccer, football is only getting bigger here. And so now that you, you know, you've been fully immersed in soccer here for a while, what do you notice are the, the biggest differences about the, the culture of the sport here, especially when it comes to youth athletes? I think it's, it's the pathway again, you know, you, there's so many different choices. There's so many different ways that there's. It, it, we're in the pay-to-play world. I haven't I've gone this long without even mentioning pay-to-play. We're in the pay-to-play world. So, so people, you know, there isn't that pathway. There isn't the pro club telling you know, saying just picking up the best players and that's where you need to be. And there isn't. So, so sadly, you know, I, I feel parents are often confused in 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 which, which is the best route to go. Where where do we go? Where should we put our son? Or or it's based off of hearsay, or it's based off of you know, there's a good coach over there. Go and go and play for that team, or or you move to a new town. How do you know? So I think that's a huge difference, and 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 one of the biggest issues that we have in the youth game here. Before you mentioned youth, there was one other thing I wanted to mm-hmm. touch on in the pro game, and and as I was thinking, as I was talking about, you know, that the, the you said it was for entertainment purposes. Well, that is, we don't have promotion and relegation in in our, in our sport in in soccer mm. or in, in any of our sports uh, in America. And I think that's one of the biggest differences, and that's one of the biggest story. You know, you, one of the biggest news stories this year globally. This country has it, been Wrexham, and and Ryan Reynolds buying yeah. the club, doing the documentary, uh, and then them getting promotion from the fifth tier to the fourth tier, yeah, and huge. selling out their stadium and being you know. But we don't have that. We're not set up for that. You know, mm. I, I remember you know my six seasons at the Battery. I'd go back to England, and people would ask me, "Well, do you think you're going to get promoted this year?" I said, well, "We can't." <laughs> well, that'd you know, be so great. What, but... what are you talking about? So you know, we might do well in the cup, and even then, we don't get any money for it. So, so, mm. so it's a huge difference on that front, uh, and that you you could be the best team in the USL, but you're never playing in the MLS. And 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 on you know to counter that. I think if the Premier League started tomorrow, I don't think it would be relegation because you wouldn't have 20 businessmen saying, mm-hmm. yeah, if we're one of the worst three, we're not going to have all the TV money next year. It just yeah. wouldn't work. So, yeah, that, that's a huge cultural difference and it's a, it's a hard one to explain to both, you know, more so when I go back to England than, than here, particularly to the, you know, the soccer fans in this country are seeing, this is what we want. We want a bit. We want the battery to be top of the league and promoted yeah. or, you know, San Antonio who won it last year and then go and get an opportunity to stay in the MLS. Mm-hmm. And, and see if we can do that, but but it, I don't think it'll ever happen. Not while you've got franchise fees involved, and you know it's like the tur- business. turkeys voting for Christmas. So yeah. <laughs> yeah, trust me, I know way more about relegation <laughs> this year than I ever thought I would, and last year it seems. What about in terms of you mentioned a little bit with like athletic development, health, and player development? What do you feel like the 
the differences are and, and also what are you hoping to change in terms of Charleston Soccer Club? Yeah, I think I think it's it's trying to educate healthy lifestyles. I think, you know, one again, one of the differences is is the tournament culture we have in this country in, in, in youth soccer that you know, I just kind of was with my daughter's team the past weekend. We're in Myrtle Beach. We're playing two games on the Saturday, which again I think is too much for for ten year olds, nine year olds to be playing two two hours in the heat mm-hmm. on turf. And then we play another game Sunday and a fourth game if if we're successful. But it's you know, what are those? What are the the eating choices? What are the you know? I, I spoke to the group Saturday morning after our first game. What what, what time did you get to bed last night? You're mm-hmm. all away. You're all excited. You know, they, and I said it's not that I don't want you to have fun, but if you're going to school the next day and, and, and you know, you're paying your money to be, you know, this is to the parents as well. You're paying money to be here, yet your daughter's up till 10 o'clock at night and then expected to perform the next morning. Mm-hmm. You're not really setting her up for success. So healthy choices, not just, you know, nutritionally and what to eat on the road, but sleeping habits and, and treating it like, you know, if you had a big math test tomorrow, would you be up at 10 o'clock at night and would you be filling the girls But maybe, you know, like well, that is. Yeah, yes, but, but unfortunately, you, yeah. yeah. So it's educate. I suppose it's part of the parent education because the parents are with them. If our coaches are with them six hours a week, the parents are with them X hours a week mm-hmm. and the teachers, you know, school teachers during school time with them another X hours a week, but the parents will be with them more than, than all those people. So really educating parents and how you can support your children, which is for the most part, what they want to do, I, I get, you know, I, I was oh, for almost sure. 100%, I would, yeah. I would hope, particularly if they sign them up to be part of our club. So, yeah, I think, you know, working with people like yourself and Made to Move, I think we, we'd like to to grow that uh, knowledge. You know, I, I don't have all the answers and how to help me. You know, I'm, I'm a father myself, but 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 how can we, it's not just about turning up and doing an hour and a half of soccer training with our coaches. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's, it's the rest all the of other it as well. Hours. Exactly. Yeah, I see a lot of kids now, you know, all they do is is play. And yeah. like you said before, you know, that one player who was playing 100 games a year, I'd be interested to know now with the youth field, how many hours are they playing right. versus training right. and practicing and preparing and recovering. And that goes back back to the charter for quality. And I think I've still got a copy and I should dig it out. But that was a change of, of, the, of the training to games ratio for mm-hmm. those young players. I think it was like three sessions to one or four sessions to one as they got older. Yeah, we're almost the other way around sometimes. Oh, yeah. so, I mean, I'll reference the, the tournaments again. You know, if we've trained, for, even if the wet, you know, if the weather's perfect, we might have trained two or three times a week. But they could be playing three. You know, it's almost one to one when it's tournament weekend, and and you don't get a chance to reflect on the game and change things. You're straight into the next one. Oh yeah, and and, and that's, you know, I, I know, you know people argue that, that well, that's fundraising for the club that keeps our fees down. But but if none of us did it, there's still the fees. It's still the same amount of money in the in the ecosystem. And could we? Is there a better way? You know, is there? You know, we Derek Broadley and I talk a lot. Who's who's also with me at Charleston Soccer Club? Talk a lot about, you know, the one game per week. You Knowing if it's eleven eight, you know, we're playing at games all times of the weekend. Families, mm-hmm. if everybody played as, as we did in England, eleven o'clock Saturday morning or Sunday morning, or you know that's your time for your game. You're an under ten player. That's the time. So that's mm-hmm. one of the things that we'd like to look to address. Hopefully, with with, with everybody in Charleston. As parents, I'm sure they'd be absolutely hype about that. <laughs> yeah, we, we mentioned it last night at our first round of tryouts, and everyone's nodding their head and saying, "Yeah, we would love that to yeah. know eleven o'clock or nine o'clock or whatever. This is the time we're playing. It's every weekend, yeah. and then you're done, and then exactly. you're free. And we're not worrying about. You know, I think I had a game at six o'clock on a Saturday last season at yeah. a, another team's facility. I won't mention the team, but but uh, yeah. And when it, when he offered me the game, and I said to him. You're saying that to me with a straight face. Six o'clock Saturday night. Yeah. And his families have got stuff going on. It becomes their whole life. Yeah. I, um, I played club volleyball growing up. And the, the eating between, it was like 
frosted flakes covered in peanut butter, butterscotch, sugar. I mean, I remember it was like amazing, but it was, you'd you'd play a game and then you'd go referee a game. You know, I'd stand on the sidelines and then I'd go just like eat. I don't really know. We'd stay up super late and it was every single weekend. And it was like, we were never strength training. We were never talked to about nutrition and recovery and all the other things that you're really, you're young and you're developing. And like those years, yes, they're incredibly important for sport, but also just for like human development. It's back to the, the golden years of learning mm-hmm. and not, not just, for, you know, you just said, not just for sport, but for good habits. You know, you pick up your good habits then yeah. and of, of how to prepare, uh, you know, how to eat, how to sleep. And, and uh, you know, if they're in, ingrained in you from those ages, the chance are it's not going to change and, and you get, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So Charleston Soccer Club, super exciting. Congrats Thank also. You. What are some of the things that you're hoping to change or implement, especially in the first year? Um, Your 100-day plan. Yeah, Let's do no, it. No, look, I think we, we have two wonderful facilities that, that we're fortunate, to, fortunate enough to work on or work at. Uh, we want to make sure those facilities are, are upgraded and maintained uh, and, and good environments for, for youth soccer players. So that's at Somerville and Daniel Island. We're big believers and have been since the start, and, and this comes a lot from Derek's approach. Derek's the technical director. Uh, he's the football side, I'm the business side individual player development. So although kids play as part of teams at the youth side, you know, kids are going to develop at different times. Can we find the right environment, the right team for that player to develop individually and become better? So so it's almost, you know, the little ones under eights to under twelves, big focus on running with the ball, staying with the ball, rather than pass, pass, pass. So so we we feel that if a player can master the ball from eight to twelve, the passing bit can come later. Um, the best players in the world are more often than not the best dribblers. Lionel Messi, Cristiano Ronaldo, you know, to name two. Uh, Mbappe. Haaland's probably a, a different animal altogether, but but that's, uh, you know, it, there's not many of them come along. But anyway, so the, the, the point being, that's what we want to do with our young players. That's what we want to re, you know, re-engage the, the youth players to be. Ball striking, which would be Erling Haaland, but uh, is it, things that we want our young players to do. And then continue and, and continue to provide a professional environment, you know, with both our backgrounds. You know, we talked a lot about myself, but but Derek was the academy director of Crystal Palace. He was the technical director of Bermuda, a, a nation in Concacaf. And I think between the two of us, we think we've got a, a vast knowledge of what it takes to to put to, to put on a good show, if you like, or put on a good uh, youth soccer environment for young players to to progress and develop and. Realise their potential wherever that may be. Is it the high school team? Is it collegiately? Is it professionally? Or is it friends for life, which which they which they probably don't realise right now? They're they're gaining friends for life by yeah, being teammates. Yeah, good point. Yeah. What are some of the things that you feel like make Charleston Soccer Club really stand out, really different from some of the other clubs? Well, I, th- I mean, without going, probably myself and Derek, you know, yeah. in our backgrounds. Um, we just took two teams to England. I think I mentioned it before. We took the 09 boys and the 2010 boys. We had a, uh, utilizing our networks. We went to three games with, with their families as well: Manchester City, Bayern Munich, Manchester United, Seville, West Ham, Arsenal. We trained at four different academies, including Manchester United and West Ham and yeah. Fulham. Uh, we gave them. We played at games at those academies as well. We gave them an insight into into what the world of football is about, or what what the the opportunities may be, but also what the you know the passion of the fans, the yeah you know, what it means to people. We'd like to replicate that every year for the girls as well. You know, I'd love, you know, yesterday Arsenal had 60,000 at their Women's Champions League game. Uh, I'd love to take, you know, my daughter and her teammates and, and, you know, and other girls in the club. It doesn't have to be just my daughter, but 
love to take them there to experience that that this isn't just about the boys anymore this is the mm-hmm. girls game as well as it is the boys and and we know that in america with the success of our national team in this country so so what do we, yeah we we think that that those are some of the things that you know our international trips but also our, our curriculum we have a, a video based curriculum that derek has, has put together it's uh, you know, I, I've been a coach in the club for five years. I knew, I've known Derek for nearly 20 years and, and I've tapped into his his coaching methodology for the, almost those last 20 years. And I know when I'm going to coach my daughter, see me, I'll click on air drive and I'll pull the session out and that's me, you know, I'm ready to go. Um, so I think, you know, as, as you would expect from any classroom or a learning environment, we, we want to, you know, back our coaches and, and support our coaches and, yeah. and, and at the same time support our players and parents. Yeah, I mean the coaches are the ones that they're directly with yeah. the with the kids all yeah. the time. Yeah. What is one message that you wish more players and parents understood about the sport? The the one message I think would be that if you're trying to and and I, I meet with all my parents every start of every season, leave the coaching to the coaches. Let no one saying don't say anything. Encourage, support, be you know. Be there for your for your child. Sit down when you watch, and you know again, I'm coming from the tournaments. You'll see the rowdiest parents are all stood up. They're all ready for battle. Uh-huh. They're screaming. They're shouting. I saw a, a penalty shootout. Probably nine year old boys. Oh the my boy goodness. missed. Put the ball over. So the other team won. Uh, you've got parents fist pumping and screaming and shouting. The nine year old boy has just missed. It's not that there isn't a great save there. He just put the ball over the top. So understand your environment. Understand mm-hmm. what you're doing. Be respectful to the other players. Be respectful to the referees. Behave as you should. And, you know, come go to the pro game if that's what you want to do. I remember as you say, yeah. I'll give you a ticket for the battery. Scream yeah. and shout as much as you like. You know, <laughs> These that, are kids. That's yeah. your role. Yeah, yeah, that's your role as a fan, not as a parent. You should be supportive. And, and I think that's one of the big things I see. You know, it, it, it's sad. And, and that's why we, you know, we have a difficulty with referees, match officials. It's another conversation for another day. But but I think a lot of that comes from parent and coaches' behaviour. You know, we, we have to... And, and we do make our coaches accountable. I know that for a fact from Derek's point of view, and that's something we will do more of moving forward. Yeah. What about in terms of the players? The player to enjoy the game, to, to fall in love with the game, and 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 continue to fall in love with the game, and, and realize that you never stop learning. You, you want it to be fun. You want it to be, but at the same time, you know, there's there's a fine line between fun and learning. So mm. if learning is fun, then then we we've cracked Great. it. Then but, we've won. But, yeah. So, but but. You know, in, in put them in an environment where they can continue to learn, have success, whatever that may be. It doesn't mean winning the leagues yeah. and the cups and all this sort of stuff, but but enjoy, you know, continue to enjoy. And you know, think back to myself. You know, I, I think I had success because I was a young player, a young spectator, and my success has been my career. So whether or not they have careers in the sport or just say, oh, I used to play that, I enjoy mm-hmm. that, uh, or you made them future fans, uh, then that 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 for me would would be. A happy ending, if you like. Definitely, yeah. How can people get involved with Charleston Soccer Club? And then do you have anything going on upcoming? Yeah, no. Um, website, chssoccerclub.com. Um, we are towards the end of our tryouts now. So with the older ones, that's the high school ages. But but we're always looking, you know, for if, if you think you, you've got a young player that you'd like to be part of us. You know, we don't start till August, although our tryouts have been on. So there's still opportunities in some teams who have some spots available. But chssoccerclub.com, uh, Instagram, Facebook pages, all the, all the rest of it. But, but that's that would be the starting point. And I think my email's on there as well. Awesome. Mike, thank you so much. Thank I'm you. super pumped for everything upcoming with Charleston Soccer Club. Thank you very much. Really enjoyed it.
Thanks so much for tuning in. Check out the links in the show notes below to get involved with Charleston Soccer Club. Otherwise, please follow and subscribe to the show so you never miss an episode and have an awesome week.